Well, good morning, everybody. That'll wake you up, right? I hope. Uh, welcome to Hope. My name is Amanda Neppel, and as John said earlier, I am so excited to be worshiping here with you all this morning. I served here as discipleship director, and I've been gone for just about a, a year. Um, and so it's this thing because you all have these kids, and then like they've gotten a lot bigger, and it occurs to me that that's what a year will do. Um, and so it's really exciting. And there's so many new faces as well that I don't know. And so I'm so glad that you are here, and this is really it's been a great opportunity to be back with you all today, so thank you for having me. We are on the fourth weekend of Lent, uh, the fourth fourth week here. We've got exactly three weeks from today we will be celebrating Easter. We will be celebrating uh, Jesus' resurrection, and so we are continuing on with this Jesus run that we've been doing, this march through the book of Matthew, learning about uh, what Jesus has done, his miracles, his teachings, all of these things, and so it's been a really great opportunity opportunity to dig in to who Jesus was and what he said and what he did. And so as we do that, if we, as we continue on in the book of Matthew and where we are in the season of Lent, it obviously just made sense to start with Lego Batman. Obviously. Deeply theological. Pretty much you've seen the best two minutes of the whole movie. I have a 10-year-old son. He digs it, so there you have it. But the reason I chose that clip is because it's so predictable, right? It is so predictable. Flying over the most crime-ridden city in the world with the cute little bombs, right? And uh, Joker comes in and the pilot's not even worried about it. Batman will stop you. It's not even a thing. Batman's going to stop him. And so when we think about this story, this event here in the book of Matthew where Jesus showed up and Jesus did a miracle and he fed the people, if you have grown up in the church, you've heard this story more than once. If you are brand, I'm getting laughs. Yep, yep, we've heard it, Amanda, so good luck with that. Uh, If you are brand new today, I'm willing to bet that you've at least had the passing realization that there was this time in the Bible where Jesus fed a bunch of people with not enough food. It's just part of kind of our, it's it's part of who we are. We kind of know that story. That story is kind of um, just generalized to society, so we know it. And so with this kind of a passage, the temptation can be to make it too straightforward, too simple, too black and white. Uh, The Uh, The Joker shows up and Batman stops the Joker and Jesus shows up and Jesus does a miracle and so we can trust in Bat. I mean Jesus too. (laughs) Amen. But there's more going on than that. There's a little bit more to this story, fortunately. And so we're going to dig into this a little bit today and see what it is that Jesus might have for us some 2,000 years later here on the other side of the world. And I really believe in this this event of the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families with just this little lunch has something to speak to us today. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, go ahead and open it to Matthew chapter 13. We're actually going to get started a little bit ahead of what we heard read for us today. And so in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is on a teaching streak. He is talking to the people, and he's doing what he does. He's teaching in parables. And so Jesus is teaching in parables about the kingdom of heaven. So we've got this five different times in Matthew chapter, just in chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted a good seed, and the enemy came in the night and threw the weeds in among that. And so the weeds and the the good seeds grew together and were separated out at the end. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It's the tiniest of seeds, and it grows into the biggest of plants. The kingdom of heaven, I'm not going to do this for all of them, but the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And then the man went off and sold everything that he had 
to purchase that field because that treasure was there and the man would give anything to be able to, to have that treasure. So we've got all of this speaking and kind of hypothetical. The kingdom of heaven is like kind of head knowledge about the kingdom of heaven. And that's really great. And then the way Matthew has arranged his gospel, we get to a little bit later in chapter 13, and then we see this real-life example of kind of how the world meets this hypothetical head teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And the first one of those is that Jesus has gone to Nazareth. He is teaching in his hometown. And instead of the folks that he's known his whole life being excited about this local boy who's done a really good job and is, is bringing the word and is doing really great things, instead of being proud of their native son, they basically run him out of town. They don't want to hear anything that he has to say. They think that he's getting a little too big for his britches, if you will. And then the next event that opens chapter 14 is a little bit more serious, a lot more serious. John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin, his ministry colleague, he, John the Baptist is murdered at the beginning of chapter 14. John the Baptist had spoken the truth to power. He had spoken the truth to Herod and, and to Herod's wife, and they didn't like it. And it ended up costing John the Baptist his head. It was a pretty permanent situation. And if we think about it, if we're, if we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and if we've been staying along kind of more or less with the Jesus run that we've been on here the last few weeks, we have this thought that, of course, Jesus shows up and Jesus does the miracle and Jesus does the healing and Jesus does something awesome. We come to expect it over and over again, but then we get this sense at the beginning of, of chapter 14 of what the real life situation is here on earth. Jesus has done his head teaching about what the kingdom of heaven is like, and then the planet earth has showed up and said that people are jerks and that those who have power tend to abuse it. And those who have power tend to, it's very tempting for them to, to lord it over those that they're able to do that with. And so real world, real life shows up just after Jesus has done these head teachings about the kingdom of heaven. So if we think about it, we can really come to the conclusion that that's kind of a lot where we are too. Yes, that... We kind of have this head knowledge of, of the way things are supposed to be, but the real, real world keeps coming in and keeps bumping up against us. And so we're going to explore that a little bit. We're going to keep going. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. As soon as Jesus heard the news about John the Baptist, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. Jesus goes off to just to pray, to be by himself, to process everything that's happened. And the people, though, the people here where Jesus is, and they just come out in droves. They show up just and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And they're bringing their sick, the people that uh, they love who need to be healed. They're not really too worried about what's going on with Jesus, what he might be dealing with. They're doing what we all do. They're thinking about their loved one who, who needs healing. And so they're coming, they're coming in droves. And then verse 14 says that Jesus had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus had compassion on them. That's why he didn't rebuke them. That's why he didn't send them away. But interestingly, this is the second time that Matthew tells us that the reason Jesus stopped and paid attention to what was going on was because he had compassion. Jesus had compassion for them. And it wasn't this head knowledge of compassion. A compassionate person would Right? It was a hands-on, real life, this is what compassion 
looks like. And that's really the difference between Jesus and the disciples at that point, and it's really the difference in a lot of times between Jesus and us. When we think about <clears throat> this event, the truth of the matter is, I have questions about how all this came down. How did, you know, 5,000 men plus their families, so let's say, just for giggles, let's say 10,000 people, where did they come from? And how did they literally not bring a snack? I mean, <laughs> I'm a mom, and my kids are older, but still, I, my purse is full of snacks and snack crumbs. I, I, frankly, I don't get it. You know, right? Um, so I don't understand this. So I was doing a little research and, and trying to put some of these pieces together. And what, what it sounds like had actually happened was that Jesus' fame, his ability to heal, his compassion had, had gotten, the word had gotten out. And so it was out in cities and it was out in towns all around the area there. So folks, it's not like they just came from the villages where they lived and then they ended up in the wilderness. They had been making their way towards where they had heard Jesus was. So they may have been traveling for days, they may have been traveling for longer than that, but they were on this, you know, trip to find Jesus so that they could be healed or so that their loved ones could be healed, which then makes a little bit more sense about why the disciples' answer to this question was not very good. Because the disciples say, they're thinking, you know, Jesus, just cut them loose, cut the people loose, it's getting dark, let them know that they can go out to some villages, that there's spots for them to find some food, just cut them loose, Jesus, and let them go on their way. And that sounds all fine and good, except for that if that's true, and if the people had been traveling, then these little local villages, there's no way that they were going to be able to accommodate all of these people. So the disciples' answer to the problem was actually, Jesus, let's send these people out of here, and then actually there'll be somebody else's problem, am I right? So the, the disciples' idea of compassion was really just to move the problem somewhere else. Kind of a half-hearted, kind of a half-hearted attempt uh, to deal with what's going on. So here's what we've got. We've got Jesus who's been teaching in parables about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then we have this real-life example of what earth is like. It's kind of a mess. People are jerks. People take advantage of other people. And if we just stopped right there... If that was the end of what we were going to talk about today, then we really wouldn't have anything else to talk about, would we? Because we all know what that's like. We all know what that's like to talk about God's love. We know what it's like to talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus. And then we get slapped in the face with the reality of what earth and what life is like. And so that's what Jesus steps into. And Jesus' response is not simply to talk to the crowd about compassion, Jesus' response is to put hands to it and heal them in real life. And not only does Jesus bring healing to them in real life, but then Jesus does something that they hadn't seen yet. And Jesus multiplies this offering so that all of the people who are there are going to be fed that day. And so Jesus shows us in real life, hands on, this is actually what compassion is. And the kingdom of heaven is this party where we never run out of anything. There is always enough. There's always enough mercy. There's always enough grace. There's always more compassion than is needed. There's always more than enough of everything. And you are invited. Best part, it doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter where you've come from. This kingdom of heaven, this compassion, this love is for you. And Jesus shows them with his hands. He takes it out of the realm of just thinking about it and talking about it, and he does it. A lot of you know that I started here at Hope in children's ministry, and I was thinking about that, and it really has been about 12 years, so I'm re beginning really my 13th year of working for Hope, which kind of 
blows my mind. But anyway, um, so like I said, I started in children's ministry, and I started out with three-year-olds through kindergartners back in the day when it was KQ. Now we call it Hope Kids. And so as a children's person, this event of the five loaves and the two fish, I think I have personally engaged in this story approximately 867 times. Because it's awesome for children's ministry. It's so concrete. Kids, there's five loaves of bread, and there's two fish, and Jesus made a miracle dish, right? And it rhymes, and it's so awesome. And Jesus is there, and he does a miracle, and, and yay, Jesus, it's awesome. And then you do that, and of course you do a snack. Because if you're in children's ministry, and you don't do a snack during this lesson, people, you are working harder, not smarter. <laughs> Obviously. Okay, <laughs> so, so you do that, and inevitably, some little sweetheart comes up with this very serious and concerned look on their face, and they say, I don't like fish. <laughs> it's okay, honey, you don't, you don't have to like fish. In Jesus' day, everybody ate fish. It was like chicken. Think of a chicken nugget drowned in ketchup. That's what we're talking about. And they still look at you, and they're like, Samantha, I don't like fish. And you realize that this kiddo is thinking, okay, you know, honestly, I'm doing okay with mom and dad. Things are going all right. And you're telling me Jesus is my friend and Jesus wants to be with me, but now you're also telling me that it's quite possible that if I'm going to follow Jesus, I have to eat fish. And frankly, this is a deal breaker. <laughs> if, if we're going to be honest, nope. And so... We can get caught up in the details of this, just like the little kids do. It's 5,000 people, and actually more than that, and it's five loaves of bread, and it's two fish, and there's 12 disciples, and there's 12 baskets left over, and oh, it's awesome, and it's amazing, and we get, oh, 12, oh, man, it's really great. Go, God. And that is great, and that is fine, and that is good, but if we get so caught up in the details of it, then we miss the fact that it's entirely possible that God wants to do and is doing a loaves and fishes story in us and through us and in people around us. <clears throat> I was talking with a, a ministry partner, someone who I, I really admire, and I, I would consider her a, a mentor in doing ministry and, and all that kind of thing. And uh, so I was talking with her about her family. I didn't know that much about her family. And so she was talking to me about her children, and she was talking to me about her grandchildren. And then she's telling me about her great-grandchildren and spending time with them. These are my people, and I'll get to them in a second. Um, but as she was talking to me about all of these people, first of all, one word that was never used in this entire conversation was easy. Never. Never did that word come up. But we talked about the challenges and the opportunities and the joys and the tears and all of this. And as I was listening to her talk about these different layers to her family, I needed that so much that day um, because I have four kiddos. My daughters are there on the, on the left, and they are 17, 15, and 13. And then my son is there in the Hope sweatshirt, and he's 10. And so with where I am in my life and with the stuff that I have going on, the truth of the matter is most of the time I can't see my way to dinner, let alone God willing, the next 40 years. This is just, you know, what are the nipples having for dinner tonight? Nobody knows. 
<laughs> so I really needed, I needed to hear that perspective, that families grow and they add and they subtract and they multiply. And we hope and pray that as they do that, that this, this faith and these promises of God get passed on and you get to see them have God show up in their life and see them be the people that God has created them to be. And when you're in it, it's so hard, nearly impossible to take a step back and see that. So as I was talking to her and I was preparing for today, I remembered that at Christmas this time we got together. My hus This is my husband's side of the family. That's his mom there in the middle. You'll notice maybe in this picture that none of the first level, you know, her children did not make the picture. <laughs> it's grandchildren and great-grandchildren only. Thank you very much. So, and then let's also address the giant man on the right. <laughs> One of these things is not like the other. Obviously. Uh, he married into the family, so that's also pretty clear. He, I love a wonderful guy, wonderful husband, wonderful dad. I love him. He just kind of sticks out. <laughs> anyway, as you can see, uh, our family is on a, a baby boom, right? There are, the families are growing. They are multiplying. So the ones down in, all the little babies are girls. And by the way, babies at a family get-together are my absolute favorite because when family starts to get a little bit overwhelming, which takes about 37 seconds, you will find me off in the corner holding somebody's baby. I honestly don't even care whose it is, right? But anyway, uh, so we're on a little bit of a baby run. Those folks down in the front, they are having a boy this summer. And then the one couple back there, the only one not holding a baby, they're having one this summer as well. Multiplication. Loaves and fishes, God showing up and God doing things. And when we think about it, something so simple as just simple and challenging and hard but, but fundamental is families growing. Well, if we start thinking about it that way, then we realize that there are fishes and loaves stories all around us, that they are happening every single day in so many different ways in so many different places. And that's one of the things that I absolutely love about our partnership with Ruth Harbor that we're doing this Lent. And if you're not familiar with that partnership, we are joining with them. Ruth Harbor is a home for young expectant mothers. And so they are able to come in and, and live at Ruth Harbor. Many of them don't really have a stable place to be, but they're able to come in and live at this home in Ruth Harbor. And then after their babies are born, then what we're trying to do is purchase a house, the McCoy Septuplet House in Carlisle. They've moved on because that's how it goes. And there's this huge house that just happens to be perfect for what this mission is. And so what we want to do is help to cover the mortgage so that Ruth Harbor can buy that home, and then there'll be a spot for young women and their new babies to live. It's not a long-term situation just until they are able to figure out all of the things, childcare, housing, work, all of those things that a young mother has to figure out that can be overwhelming in the best of circumstances. And so when we think about this event, when we think about this uh, partnership and this opportunity, first of all, we're talking about a young woman, maybe a, a really young woman, who, has, who is expecting a baby, she's pregnant, and the world tells her, this isn't a pregnancy so much really as this is a problem. And this problem has a solution. <clears throat> and so... I want to tell you that if, if you are a, a young woman or if you're an older woman who at some point in your life has bought into the world's solution for this problem, 
I want to tell you that God's mercies are fresh and new, and they are for you every overflowing, overflowing to abundance. And God doesn't have a fallback plan for you. God has a different plan A for you. And I hope that you know that. I hope that you know it with your whole heart. And if you don't, I want you to connect with me because I want to uh, be able to walk with you through that and help you see that God has a plan A for you that can be beautiful, okay? I also think that when we're talking about this home, when we're talking about these women, Jesus steps into this situation, and the love of Jesus says, I know all too well what the world says. And I know all too well how the world wants you to respond to this. And Jesus says, this way is not going to be easy. That word doesn't come up in this. But this way offers blessings that you cannot possibly imagine. In God's measure of things with this project, we aren't just talking about a young woman. In God's measure of things, we aren't even just talking about a baby. In God's measure of things, we're talking about generations. We're talking about generations that have the opportunity to to live and to know God's love for them. And what I think about with this and and what gets me so excited about this, this, this isn't just the hypothetical head awareness of, yeah, Jesus loves you. Young mom, young expected mom, and you don't know what's going to happen. Jesus loves you. It's going to, Jesus loves you. It's going to be all right. Jesus loves you. This takes this hypothetical head knowledge of Jesus loves you, and it puts hands and feet to it through the people that God has called to be a part of this mission, for the people that God has called to be a part of this opportunity. So we take whatever meager offering we have, whether it's a financial offering or whether it's a prayer offering, whatever it is, we take whatever meager thing that we have and we offer it up, trusting and knowing that God wants to do a loaves and fishes situation with this young woman and her baby and the families that go from it. Jesus wants to show up hands-on with compassion, and he wants to do it through you. A couple Saturdays ago, it was a day kind of like today, um, in that the snow came out of nowhere. And can we just say that snow on the same day that we set our clocks ahead, it's like wrinkles and adult acne. They should never, ever, ever, ever go together, ever. (laughs) Never. Anyway, a couple Saturdays ago, I was was walking my dogs, and I should say that that particular day, I'm not totally sure what went sideways, but I woke up in a terrible, horrible, rotten, foul mood, just bad. And I am not really self-aware enough to be able to tell you what I was so mad about, But I am able to tell you that when I find myself in that place, the very best thing for me to do is to go outside, get some fresh air, get get some exercise, move around a little bit. That is the easiest way for me to address this problem when it comes up. So I take my dogs out, and as I leave the house, it's not snowing, but I get about three blocks in, and we start to get a few flurries. And then the flurries soon turn into these giant snowflakes. They're giant. The kind that you feel them as they hit your face and they get stuck in your eyelashes for a couple seconds before they melt. So I did what I think anybody would do. I put my hood up, I put my head down, and I'm carrying on with my walk, uh, focused, determined, not letting a little uh, snow get in, stop me. 
So then I go on, several blocks later, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what caught my attention. I don't know what stopped me in my tracks, but something did. Something caught my attention, and I stopped, and I looked up. And I stopped so hard that I gave my dogs whiplash, I think. <clears throat> but I stopped, and I looked up. And I just, it took my breath away for a second. It was so amazingly beautiful. They were those huge flakes, you know, and there was a lot of them. And they were kind of dampening things the way that snow does. And the street was quiet. And we had had, had some snow and ice, but it was all kind of that dingy brown. But the new snowflakes, because they were so big, were already starting to cover that up. So everything looked really fresh and really clean. And I just stopped. I couldn't even believe it. I had this most overwhelming sense of peace and of comfort. I don't want to be corny. I don't want to be overly corny about it. But I really felt in that moment I was I was just I was so I was so full of gratitude and so thankful to even just be alive and be breathing and I was so thankful that I was even able to walk and that I had these two dogs. I mean everything I don't even know. Uh, the foulness of my mood earlier than that had done a completely 180, and I was just, oh, I was so glad to be alive. I was so glad to be there in that moment. And it occurred to me that I had come so close to missing it because I didn't want to feel the uncomfortableness of snow hitting my face. I came so close to missing that moment because I'm walking around blinking like a weirdo, right? Um, but without doing that, I was going to miss what God wanted to show me that day, that God wanted to remind me that he was there, that he was present, that I needed to get over myself a little bit. Now, honestly, from there, the analogy kind of breaks down because as I decided from that moment that I was going to look up, you know, just hit me in the snow or hit me in the face, snow, just come at me, right? I'm looking up. I don't care. Uh, so then, like I said, it started to cover the old ice, and so then I slipped and I fell. Uh, <laughs> I didn't get hurt. It was totally fine. Uh, but I was, so, I was so at peace. I don't even think I said a bad word when I hit the ground. I really don't think I did. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's a transformation, people. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but anyway, I came so close to missing this thing that God wanted to do because I was worried about being a little uncomfortable. And in this event of the loaves and the fish, it goes on, and it's fascinating to me because Jesus, once he received this, this meager offering, he lifted it to heaven, and he blessed it, and then he broke it when he gave it to the disciples. And I think we don't have any trouble understanding that. Of course, he broke it. He had to break it to pass it out. Of course, he did. But when it comes to us, we don't want to think about how Jesus might have to do a breaking in us as well. That gets really uncomfortable for us. And I'm not talking about this, you know, where we need to be broken, where, you know, God does something, sends something terrible to punish us for our sins. That could not be farther from the truth of what I'm talking about. But I am talking about what Jesus needs to do to us so that he can get us out of the way. How does Jesus need to challenge each one of us in our pursuit of being comfortable? What are what we're willing to, to give up? What kind of risk are we not willing to take because we're in the pursuit of being comfortable? What does Jesus need to do to us to take out our stubborn heart and replace it with a compassionate, tender one? Sometimes those things are uncomfortable. Sometimes they're a lot 
uncomfortable. That day in the snow for me was a really, really good reminder and a good course correction, and that's what God does all over the place when we are willing to see what he's up to. Because the truth of the matter is, we're talking about loaves and fishes, we're talking about multiplication, and so often we want to we wanna be a part of that, we want to see God do something awesome, or at least that's what we're thinking. But then when it starts to get uncomfortable, turns out maybe we just as soon leave it in our heads before we get our hands dirty. And the problem is that the only way we're actually going to become the person God has called us to be, the only way we're actually going to get to see loaves and fishes kind of multiplication in our own life and in our own walk with Christ is when we're willing to be broken just a little bit so that our, our spirit can just surrender to God's spirit and what God wants to do. The Apostle Paul tells us in, he says it twice. He says it in Romans and he says it in Philippians. So you know he means it and he's quoting Isaiah actually when he says in reference to Jesus Christ. Paul says, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. This will happen. People who don't know Jesus, people who have never had an opportunity, whatever they're up to, people who just straight up refuse to acknowledge, we will bow we will bow and we will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's not the question. The question that we're answering is, when will that happen? Because there are two potential answers to that question. The first one is that we can surrender, and we can surrender our will to God now, and we can be willing to be a little bit uncomfortable. We can be willing to have our stubborn heart worked on a little bit. The thing is, I have no idea what I was so mad about that day when I set out to go on my walk. I really, I don't totally know, but I can guess, knowing me, that I probably felt in some weird way, like maybe I wasn't getting what I deserved. Maybe things weren't going the way that I felt like they were supposed to go for me. Um, it's, an, it's really painful to admit that, that I can get so caught up in what I think I need and what I think I want and what I think others should be doing for me it's, I really hate admitting that, to be honest, but it's true. And I think we all end up in that space. And when we're in that space, our stubborn heart isn't open to what God wants to do in us. <clears throat> Paul tells us every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. So option one is we figure it out this side of heaven. Option two is we choose not to. It's through our stubborn heart we decide not to. And so we live in this life as though we hang on to everything so tight. We live as though there's never going to be enough of anything. We live as though there's never enough grace for us, let alone for anyone else. We live as though we have to pursue our own needs all the time because that's the only way our needs are going to get met. And only to find out then, only to find out that our will will surrender, we will bow. Only we find out that our life is over, that we missed it. We missed it. We miss the opportunity for God to do a loaves and fishes type situation in our life, in us, through us, for the sake of the world. God starts with us because Jesus leaves the 99 to go find the one. Jesus loves you and cares about you and sees you and knows your name and wants to draw you into a relationship with him. And we all know that that's not the end of the story. Jesus wants to see you, to meet you where you are and heal you so that you can be a voice of seeing and healing and hands-on Jesus for somebody else who needs it so badly. That's multiplication. Loaves and fishes. 
So what I want you to think about this week, Hope Des Moines, as you go out and you, you live your life, what do you think the multiplication story is that God wants to do in you? And there are probably several because that's how God works. God doesn't swoop in and do a one-time thing and then leave you. God continues to do things, continues to call out where we're comfortable, continues to call out where our heart is stubborn because God is a God of multiplication every single time. What is your meager offering? What can you bring? For some of you, what you can bring is you got out of bed today and you are here and you have shown up. Amen. I am so glad that you are here. Keep showing up every day. For some of you, you, are, you have the ability to, to be present with people, to listen, to hear their stories, to meet them where they are, to let them know that you see them. Some of you, there's somebody you interact with and they are just desperate for you to ask them. So tell me your story. What's going on? Tell me how you got here. They're desperate for that. They're desperate to know that somebody sees them and, and is willing to pause and hear about who they are. Don't, please don't tell me for one second that you don't have anything to give. Please don't tell me that because that's just a lie. And if you believe that, God wants to get that lie out of your heart because it's keeping you from being the person that God has called you to be. Consider, consider for a minute that you're there that day when they're gathering the, the loaves and the fish, right? And they gather together this little thing that basically they've got 10,000 people at least and they've gathered what basically amounts to a Lunchable. Did anybody think that was going to be enough? Of course not, until Jesus got a hold of it. Not until Jesus got a hold of it and took the meager offering that they had, what they could scrounge up, what they could find, and Jesus multiplied it and did what only Jesus can do. I know that sometimes it feels like there is no way, that there is no way for this world to be made right, that it's too big, and into the middle of that, Jesus shows up, hands-on, and says, there is a way. There is a way because of what Jesus has done on the cross, because of his death and because of his resurrection that sin and death are defeated forever. And if Jesus has made a way for that, then Jesus can certainly make a way for each one of us to bring our meager offering and trust that he's gonna work a miracle in it. What's the multiplication story? What's the loaves and fishes story that God wants to do in you? Jesus wants to make a way for that to happen. And so we're going to celebrate that. We're going to sing about that. So I invite you to stand on up and let's sing. <laughs>